Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Hey, Lisa, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here. How are you doing? Good. Can you remember anything in your life that seemed really scary when you were a kid, but now when you look back, it's almost laughable? Oh my goodness, so many things. I was a little bit of a sensitive kid and maybe a little easily scared about certain things. One thing that comes to mind is we used to visit my aunt and uncle in Oregon for Thanksgiving every year and then again in the summer. And they had, we would stay in the basement bedrooms. You'd have to walk outside from the kitchen into the garage and then down these stairs to get to the hallway where the bedrooms were. And I remember being terrified because at the bottom of the stairs was a little room and it was a pantry and there was no door on it. So it was just this dark cavernous doorway and I would be so afraid to run, to go past it. I mean, so I would get near the bottom of the stairs. I'd go slower and slower and then I'd stand there and build up my courage and then run past it as fast as I could just in case somebody or something inside that dark room was going to grab me and pull me in there. How about you? Oh my gosh, I can so relate to that. We had a tiny little row home, which is kind of a Baltimore thing. But anyway, it had, you know, the main living part and then upstairs bedrooms with a bathroom and then a basement with a bathroom. And the basement wasn't really finished. And the bathroom was, you know, like around the corner. And it was, there were always a lot of like spiders and, you know, it was just like old and dingy and no one ever wanted to go down there. And I also remember being terrified absolutely terrified to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, which is a good thing I got over that because I feel like I do that all the time as an adult. I don't know why it was so scary, but I was convinced someone was going to like jump out and eat me if I had to pee in the middle of the night. And I would just lay there, you know, crossing all my legs and all my toes and all my fingers um, until like the sun came up because I refused to get out of bed to go to the bathroom. (laughs) That is so sad to imagine, you know, you're just trapped in bed. I mean, there's so many things that little things I was scared of. And I had to be really, really careful. My parents had to be very careful about what I was allowed to see on TV because I was such a, had such a vivid imagination. I would dream about it. I would be sure it was going to happen. I wasn't even allowed to watch Star Trek because I would get these images in my mind and I could not get rid of them and then I wouldn't sleep. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. And do you watch Star Trek now? Well, I don't, but only because I'm not interested. But I still honestly am very careful about what I watch because I will still have trouble sleeping and I just, it's not worth it to me. As an adult, I can, I can uh, monitor myself about that. I mean, like I wouldn't even dream of watching a horror movie or, I mean, we were going to watch a really suspenseful movie one night and the music came on and I looked at Russ, I said, yeah, going to be too much for me. I'm going to bed. And I went to bed and he and the adult kids watched it. <laughs> You and I could hang out and watch TV while our other kids all watched suspenseful movies. I am more like a Hallmark girl these days. <laughs> okay, I don't know if I'm Hallmark exactly, but uh, yeah, I am really careful even still. But you know, with our kids, a lot of us have kids who have experienced truly frightening, traumatic things, things that would be traumatic to them as children, but even to us as adults. And so their fears are, you know, they're very legitimate fears. And we have to help them process these traumas as well as we can. And we need skills and tools to do that. I am super excited to welcome Robin Goebel to the show this week. She is a therapist who lives in Austin with her husband and her son. She is a licensed clinical social worker, registered play therapist. I mean, the things that she's certified and licensed in is longer than my arm. EMDR, 
play therapy. She's also a trust-based relational intervention um, practitioner and educator. So that's TBRI, which we have talked about before on the show. And she is just one of my favorite people to listen to talk about kids who have trauma because she's so passionate about it and she's so smart. So I think you're really going to enjoy her. Her practice solely focuses on families of children who have experienced a history of toxic stress and complex trauma. So our families are who she deals with. Like she doesn't do anything else except for this. And so she's just so good at what she does. And so we invited her here specifically to talk about how we can better walk our kids through these scary experiences. And some of them are things that maybe we don't really understand to be scary, but our kids experience as scary. And then we also talk about, you know, obvious big scary things that we might hear about like on the news and those kinds of things. Well, I'm really looking forward to hear what she has to say. Let's welcome Robin to the show. Well, Robin, thanks for being here. It feels like there really aren't enough professionals with the compassion and understanding that you have for adoptive and foster families. And I really appreciate your voice and your passion for really making a difference for our kids in this space. So yeah, absolutely. Super excited to be here with you today. We're just chatting about helping our kids process what we're calling big, scary events in the world. Uh And um, can you just talk about some examples of what types of events you've seen that kids kind of see as like big and scary? I know I have an idea in my mind of what I probably think kids see, but you see a lot more kids than I do. So what are the things that you're seeing? Yeah, well, I think one of the most important things to keep in mind is that this can vary so much, right? Like what one child experiences is overwhelming overwhelming or traumatic or scary and versus what another child does and what we as adults do can I mean, it can vary so much. So, I mean, common things I see are like, uh, you know, obviously things in the family, divorces, moving. Uh, sometimes I think we really underestimate how hard moving is for kids and all the losses and potential trauma that can go along with that. You know, day-to-day kinds of things like falling off the monkey bars at school. Oh my gosh, throwing up at school. This is can be... Um, I've seen that bring kids to therapy more times than you, you'd be so startled. It's just so humiliating and it's such a, it's such a visceral body experience that you can't control. And it, that adds, I think, to the trauma, the trauma related to it. Dog bites, you know, it, sports injuries. It's really, it can be almost anything that just in the moment feels really overwhelming to that kiddo. Yeah. Do you feel like kids are in tune enough to like be worried about kind of big, scary events like on the news? So maybe, you know, I'm thinking back to when I was a kid, like uh-huh. 11 or now school shootings are showing up way, way too often. So yeah, yeah. I think this really varies like kid to kid, family to family. So some kids have are just more temperamentally inclined to worry about like big things, things that aren't necessarily happening to them directly, but they know are possibilities or kind of exist in the world. Um, And so I see that just kind of as a temperament variance, kind of like these existential almost, or just, you know, big, big worries about things that are happening to other people. Um, You know, certainly that has a huge variance based on how much kids are exposed to that, either like at home at school, like how well, you know, teachers or grownups at school are helping kind of contain some of that stuff. And then how much the parents are worried 
and nervous about those types of things certainly plays a huge, huge role in that. Definitely. So talk to me more about that. Talk to me about the parents' role and that how our regulation about some of these events plays into how that will play out with our kids. One of my favorite sort of mind-blowing statistics is that the ratio, and I'm going to use some clinical language and then I'll say what it means, the ratio of explicit to implicit data that's happening any moment is 50 bits of explicit data to about 11 billion bits of implicit. So what that means in like real person language is that like explicit data is all the same things we're like really consciously aware of. And so explicit stuff is things that we're saying, things that we're talking about, you know, like there are language in our words, things that are really concrete and we are totally aware of noticing. And then implicit is basically everything else. So all this nonverbal communication, all the stuff that's happening outside of our conscious awareness is implicit. We can, we could be pretty shocked to think about like, no matter, no matter what our words are about, you know, how we're talking about certain things or how we're trying to give information to our kids about certain things, right? Like words, that's all explicit, but how we get those words and like the state of our regulation or anxiety underneath them or all these things that are still happening, but we're maybe not giving words to, or we might even be trying to fake it, you know, and pretend like we're not anxious about it, but really we are. Like all of that stuff is still getting communicated to our kids and their systems are still picking up on it, even if we're not saying it with words. So that I think really helps understand why no matter what our words are, like the, the relationship that we have with that, with those words or how we're feeling when we're talking about something really scary, like most recent school shooting, you know, like these really big news incidents that come up, like how we're feeling about them is really important because our kids are getting that and they're, it's, an, it's implicit in the communication, even if we're not saying it with words. Oh gosh, that's really... <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's like really, really amazing sobering. <laughs> to think about and really terrifying. I total I feel the same way. But that's also why I tell people, like, you know, it's really important to just give be honest. Like just give words to it. You know, like if you're feeling anxious or nervous about something, just say, like, I feel anxious about this too, or this really overwhelms me too, or I'm nervous about this too. Like faking it is not usually super successful. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So that's interesting. And I've heard you talk about this before, but uh-huh. are we stressing our kids out more if we're trying to fake it? So if we're trying to say the right things, but we're not feeling the right things, then if we're feeling even like maybe as anxious and even maybe as disorganized as they are, but we're able to yeah. verbalize that. Do our, like, how important is it for our words to match our internal? really important really important because the brain knows like underneath we might not know that we know but the brain absolutely knows if like this person's like outsides and insides aren't matching that is very stressful Um, especially to kids who have traumatic experiences in their backgrounds and they're used to situations that don't feel safe or don't feel authentic or feel really unpredictable the added unpredictability of like this person saying one thing, but I know they're feeling something else is pretty scary, right? That feels like anything could happen if I can't really trust their words. So I think it's really important. And I think it's also really important as adults, we 
take time to have a lot of awareness of how we're experiencing something and a lot of like compassion and gentleness about it, right? Like, of course we feel overwhelmed by the next school shooting that's happened or, you know, by hearing that our, you know, friend's kid who's in the same grade as our kid is getting, you know, badly bullied at school or whatever it is. Like, of course we feel anxious or overwhelmed or scared about that you know, really finding space to, to notice that, honor that, and take care of that ourselves so that when we do go to our kids and we try to be with our kids, we can, we can be with their experience of it without sort of like accidentally giving them our experience of it. Um, but I also think that doesn't mean we don't be honest about like this, this really scares me or it's really hard for me to have this part in, of your life that I can't control and I feel really scared and really vulnerable about, about it, right? Like we can honor our own feelings and then still be totally present for our kids, right? Without giving them our feelings. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is it's important to communicate like what we're feeling on the inside, but maybe even the calmer we can communicate it, even though we're maybe not feeling that calm, does that play a part into it? So we don't want to be like hysterically like crying to our kids about with all of like we don't want to kind of project all the feels necessarily either so there's kind of like this, this like happy balance between calmly yeah. telling them that we're like anxious or scared without like actually like vomiting emotions all over them <laughs> absolutely I mean there's a different yeah so there's this kind of sweet spot where I can totally notice and own my feelings and know that they're there and not even try to like make them go away by any means but that they're they're not so overwhelming that they prevent me from, from giving more focus to my kids' feelings, right? Like as a parent, it is my job to kind of be there for them and focus on their experience as opposed to being over, overwhelmed by mine. But so they can both coexist and we can acknowledge that, but it is important that the primary focus be on what your kids' experience is and that we don't kind of give them ours or project ours onto theirs. We could probably spend a whole episode on this, but do you have like one favorite tip that you like to give parents about their self-regulation, like how they kind of rein in? And you talked a little bit about, you know, just recognizing and honoring. Is there any other like great, quick, like regulating tip to, you know, kind of pull our stuff together quickly so we can then address our kids? Sure. I think for me, I think the easiest thing to do is ahead of time, right? Like when you're not in the moment of something big and scary or overwhelming, kind of notice like what's, what's the easiest, fastest way that I kind of naturally ground myself or get back in my body or get back in the present moment. Um, you know, some people do that through like noticing their breath. Some people do that through like noticing their feet on the floor. I tend to, if I'm sitting down, I tend to ground more through like my hips in my, like my seat, as opposed to through my feet. That's just kind of where I naturally go to when I'm kind of connecting to my body and grounding and noticing. And since I know that about myself, it makes it easier for me to go there and, and ground. But it could be a smell, you know, paying attention to something that you're hearing. And the whole purpose is if I start to get dysregulated and I start to go down like this fearful, overwhelmed place, I am losing contact with what's happening in this exact moment. So if I can take my brain and go, okay, how can I get myself focused and back in this exact moment by something that's happening exactly right now? Something I can hear. I can hear the clock ticking. Oh, I just heard the air conditioner click on. 
oh, I can taste that we had Mexican for dinner in my mouth still, right? Anything that's happening in the exact right here and now is really the best, fastest way to, to reconnect and regulate yourself and then be able to be present again for your kid. Um, and it's important to practice that outside of the moment. Like, what are my two, what are my go-to things that I noticed first when I'm trying to draw attention to what's happening in the here and now? Do I notice sight? Do I notice sound? Do I notice smells? You know, yeah. Cause that'll help you go through it faster. Okay, great. Obviously within, you know, protecting everyone's privacy, is there like an mm-hmm. anecdotal example or maybe like a compilation of mm-hmm. you know, a story that you can tell of your experience of a child being able to process something scary because of or with the help of a compassionate, understanding, caring adult? Yeah, I do. I have actually this uh, example I use a lot when I teach and, and train that happened to my kid a long, long time ago. That is a wonderful example for a whole lot of reasons. But he's he's a junior, he's a middle school kid now. But when he was in kindergarten, my mother-in-law was visiting in town, and the three of us and my mother-in-law. So we decided we were going to go on like simple, easy kayak canoe trip. Um, this is very low risk activity. <laughs> and about halfway through my mother-in-law, um, in an attempt to keep my kiddo from hitting, getting hit in the face by a branch. Cause they were getting close to the, like to an embankment. She, she reached up and she grabbed the branch so that it wouldn't kind of like smack my kid in the face, but then she didn't let go of the branch. So the boat kind of kept going and my mother-in-law's holding onto this branch, which ultimately ended up the boat tipping over. And this was, from a grown-up's perspective, it wasn't stressful with regards to safety. Like we were in four feet of water tops, you know, and my, my kiddo for sure had a life jacket on because it's a law. Like there was never a safety concern at all. But what did happen that was extremely stressful was that my husband wears hearing aids and in the commotion of him like jumping out of the boat and you know, all this stuff happening, I hear his hearing aids fell off oh, and gosh. both were soaking wet and one floated away. And my husband's a musician. So he's like, really nice hearing aids. So we're just kind of standing there watching his hearing aids float away and our, you know, nice little canoe trip turned into like an $8,000 ordeal. Oh my god. And so so we were stressed about that. We were also really stressed about not acting stressed because my mother-in-law felt so bad about what she had done. We just didn't want to do anything that made it feel like there was blame or any, you know, so we tried really hard to just be like, "Okay." <laughs> no no yeah, worries. So exactly. So we're stuffing our feelings and trying to take care of somebody else's feelings and and also not really paying attention to the fact that this was really scary to my tiny kindergartner, right? And so what happened is as the days went on, I watched his sweet little personality really change. Like he became this grouchy, mean, like he was coming home from kindergarten and being telling me mean stories about his friends and a teacher had had a talk with him because he was being really critical about a friend in class. So I watched this like really marked change happen in him. He was also telling anybody who would listen to him 
about how grandma held onto the tree branch and made the canoe flips over and my dad's hearing it's loaded away. <laughs> like, like the people at the grocery store were getting this story seriously. And so despite being like a trauma therapist who does this for a living, I remember calling like a colleague and being like, oh my gosh, I think my kid's been traumatized. What do I do? <laughs> and he says, well, you have to help him integrate it. Like you have to make a story around this. Okay. Okay. That's right. That's right. Like I know how to do this, you know? And So taking what I know about like memory processing theory and what happens when something scary and overwhelming happens, and then there's nobody there to support it. My husband and I were so oblivious to his experience because we were so preoccupied in ours that we weren't able to get in there and give him language like, oh my gosh, I bet this was so scary everybody's okay. Like everybody's fine. We were always fine, but, but I can imagine it was really scary. Like we just never did that. Never really even occurred to me to do it because it was, we were in four feet of water. Like I was just completely oblivious to how scary this must have been. Anyway, we wrote a story together and the story is actually available on my blog. So if anybody went to my blog and looked for the um, category trauma story, You'd actually, I wrote a couple articles about it. This was a really long time ago. I could probably stand to update them. But I wrote a couple articles about it. And then I actually videotaped me reading the book that my son created. And then now I use this example when I train. So we wrote the story and I knew that the really important things to hit on when helping kids after a traumatic thing is one, to like hear their version of what happened like, what did he, what was his story? What did he think had happened? And he was little at the time. So I wrote while he was narrating the story, I could hear and I found out things that he did not experience accurately that I didn't know he didn't experience accurately. Like he thought I wasn't there. He thought I was gone. I was in a different boat. And so he thought I didn't see it happen and I wasn't there. Oh, I can't even remember now off the top of my head, but there's several things that he perceived inaccurately about the experience. He did things that people commonly do after traumatic experiences. Like he put some blame on himself and for the hearing aids floating away, you know, he was like, I should have jumped out of the boat. I should have known that that was happening and jumped out. And then things that were certainly not true, but going through and hearing his story and capturing his narrative helps me one, know things I didn't know already. And then two, give him accurate information about what really did happen. And then I also just needed to pay attention to things like, what were you feeling? And what was this, like, where were you feeling that in your body? Like, what's the sensation that goes along with that? Because I know that those are kind of the components of of a memory network. And traumatic symptoms you know, develop when the memory network doesn't get stored correctly. So I wanted to help him take all these pieces of a memory network and store them together correctly. Again, that's just facts, you know, finding out what he inaccurately believed was happening, um, helping him get the accurate information, you know, restoring like some of his beliefs about what happened, like it was my fault to it wasn't your fault or I was unsafe to you were never unsafe. It seems really scary. And I didn't want to, I wanted to acknowledge that. Like it was so scary. And 
dad was right there. The very first thing he did was reach for you and you have a life jacket on. Like it was never actually unsafe. And so we went together and we wrote this big story about it. And I, I dictated all the language. You make sure to add in the true parts. Like I just said, like, and I was always safe. My dad was right there the whole time or whatever. Eventually he illustrated the book, but we, we read the book kind of repeatedly that night and then several times over the next couple of days. But I, I literally watched like the traumatic kind of residue, like his anger and his irritation changed immediately. Like before he went to bed that night, it had already changed. And then I just, we just kept reading it at his yeah, his preference. Like I allowed him to kind of dictate when we looked at it or when we read it again. He just kept it in his bedroom so he could look at it whenever. Yeah, I love that. So thinking about families with kids, you know, who come from trauma, who might yep. not be as compliant to some of these things, like what is yeah. language that you can give parents to even approach this with a child? You know, they know that this is, would be a great, really therapeutic activity. Yep. How do you approach it with the best chance of your child being able to walk through a story like this with you? Stay very aware. So hold lots of curiosity so you can pick up on subtle cues that your kid has developed, right? So if, if you can't have this nice dialogue about, you know, what did they think happened, then you just have to like up your detective skills and just listen for little things that they might be saying or how they're describing the event to their friends or so that you can try to just notice like what, what was the scariest part here? What was the worst part? What is my child worrying about in relation to this thing that happened? And then remember kind of like the, those pieces. And again, you wanted to, you could go to my blog and kind of check this out and get it even like in writing you know, that, that we want to talk about the facts. We want to get the facts right. And, and we want to add in the thought, the feeling, and the sensation. And this, as, you're, as you're talking to your kid, if you can even just narrate some of that, you know, like, so for example, in my kid's situation, I could have been like, oh my gosh, I, I bet that because I was in a different boat, there was a part of you that wondered if I was even there. And I'll bet that that was so scary and felt absolutely terrible in your body. I was there the whole time. Like I saw it happen. And as soon as I saw it happen, I jumped out of the boat and I ran over to help you. If I had not been so preoccupied with my husband and my experience, I could have picked up on those kinds of things. And then maybe toss something like that out there while we're driving the car or like when we're in a, a situation where there's, there's something that's kind of distracting. So my kid doesn't, isn't overwhelmed with um, the intensity of the situation. Like maybe we're doing something else or we're cooking or we're getting ready for this, you know, and just kind of like try to toss these little nuggets out there and keeping in mind like, Oh yeah, I want, I want to make sure I honor what their belief was, but I also want to make sure I give them the right fact talk about their feeling, you know, talk about the sensation. So, and that's worthwhile, even if the reaction that you get from bringing it up is immediate, like, I didn't feel that, or that's not what happened. Is it still worthwhile to say that even if the reaction will be kind of reactive? I, I think it is. I think what that means you have to do is just heighten your own kind of attunement to yourself and your kiddo about like, are you actually getting it wrong? Right. <laughs> or... Are they being kind of like their typical defended reactiveness? Because if you're actually getting it wrong, like we want to know that because mostly because it's not, it's going to be experienced as more misattunement and it's, it's not going to be helpful. So you have to really just heighten your attunement to that. Be curious. Like maybe I actually am getting it wrong. Yeah. 
Yeah. And what is the best response if you're telling the true part? Like, you know, you said, you know, you probably didn't even realize, or he didn't, you knew that he didn't even think that you were there. And you were like, you know, that was probably really scary, but I was in the next boat and I, I was right there to help you. And so, you know, that that's how it went down. What happens if a kid's like still adamant? You weren't there. No, you weren't. You weren't yeah. there. You totally abandoned me. And I would just stay with a feeling, right? Like I, and, and say like, you can validate somebody's current feeling in their version of reality without agreeing that it's right. 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 Like you can say like, it felt like you felt like I wasn't there. Like I was told, like your experience is that I was not even there and that must've been terrible. And I can, you're really mad about it. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> Because when people are that defensive, arguing with them is like the opposite of helpful. I mean, the the reality is, is that what's overwhelming in traumatic experiences is the sensation of being alone. Really, the most important thing is afterwards that we we give the experience of not being alone. Right. So even if my kid had argued with me about that, like you weren't there, you were not there. You didn't see it happen. You didn't, you didn't come very fast. Like, even if he had insisted on that, the most important thing is that I'm not alone with him in that moment, right? That I don't leave him alone in that by getting defensive or argumentative, but that I'm just like, yeah, that's totally what your experience was. And that must have been terrible. I'm sorry. Those are really good words. So that whole like concept of kind of like stay on the same team as your kid. Yeah. So you said, you know, knowing our, owning our own emotions about something, you know, being present, using narrative story to help our kids, you know, integrate whatever scary thing they've heard about, seen, experienced themselves. Um, Do you have any other golden nugget tips for parents, you know, as they help their kids walk through these things? Well, I think my other big takeaway point that I would want people to really leave hearing is kind of that piece I just ended on which is to not, not to underestimate the power of just being present. Um, and you have to be regulated in order to do that. But again, even if your kiddo is being argumentative about the facts or feels like they're not allowing you to kind of get in there with them or integrate that experience with them, that even if that's what it feels like, still the most important thing to do is to stay regulated and stay present and kind of reflect back their feeling in that moment because it's the not being alone part, right? Like if you're, if you're talking about the experience, we know that it's some, it's active somewhere in their brain and the not being alone is what they need in order to be able to integrate that. They need that the most. So even if you can't give the true facts or even if you can't like get in there and really work with them on the narrative and the way you want to be, you know, if you can hold true, like, but me being present with them in this moment as they're still really angry at me about it or as they're still arguing with me about the facts or whatever. Like if I can stay present right now, that's giving them a new experience in relationship to the trauma that happened, which is that they're not alone. Yeah, I think that's really good because I can imagine there might be families with kids who have gone through scary things where they really weren't there. They don't know the facts. And so that's great advice to just, we have a new opportunity to be. Okay. So I want to circle back to something you said, you know, we talked about the exposure piece, you know, hope Uh varies what kids are see as scary because of the exposure. And so kids go out in the world, they go to friends' houses, they go to school, they, Uh you know, they have, we have maybe extended yes. family member that maybe yep. isn't always on our team. Like yep. talk about just some of the best ways to either decrease that exposure or if it happens, is there 
another like side set of tools or something else to consider if, you know, things happen that, you know, we didn't necessarily want our kids to be exposed to. Sure. Well, I think the best way to tackle this is preemptively. And so being really realistic about your kid's experience in the real world. Um, And I know like, I just have one kid. And so something that used to surprise me for the most part, it doesn't anymore was that his same age peers have older siblings. Like I forgot about this. And so (laughs) even when I was like, Oh, third graders aren't talking about or know about X, Y, Z. It's like, yeah, my third graders not because he has no reason to be exposed to this content, but his friends have siblings who are in high school and they have friends and they're at their house and they're talking about things, you know? So reminding yourself that, that your kid is going to be exposed to things that if they never left your house, they would never be exposed to, you know, so we don't do, I don't, we don't do TV or media or things like that really at our house. And so I do have a pretty tight reign over what my kid's exposed to with regards to media, big national things that happen or things like school shootings or things like that. But I, I know that he's going to go to school the next day and he has peers who, again, have older siblings or two have families who aren't as tightly controlled about the media or what their kids are exposed to. Uh, He's going to have access to these things. And I just have to kind of come to terms with that and know that my kid exists in the real world and that is going to happen. And despite what my preferences are, you know, just acknowledge that so I can prep for that. Because if much as possible, I want to be the one who gives information. Uh, When big things happen, like a school shooting or, you know, where, where we live, like the presidential election was a really big thing that I wanted my kid to have a narrative about those things before he went and interacted with his peers, even if in my home he wasn't being exposed to that stuff on the media. Um, so to be preemptive about it, to be realistic about what your kid is going to um, experience out in the real world so that you can give the narrative and you can give the truth and you can answer their questions as opposed to their third grade friend who has seventh grade brother and sister. It's kind of like talking about sex with your kid, right? Like yeah. <laughs> you want to do it before their peers are talking about it. You want to give the information <laughs> And you want to make sure you answer their questions so that their peers aren't answering their questions. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's almost better to just tackle. I mean, as much as we'd like to like put our kid in a protective bubble in a protective bubble and bury our head in the sand, almost better to just kind of assume that some of these things, especially some of the bigger things, I mean, obviously there's going to be things that we just aren't expected by anyone or we can't control, Exactly. but but to know that, you know, people talk, kids talk, kids have friends who have siblings who have friends who have siblings who are even older, you know? Um, And so to kind of just meet this head on is probably better in the long run. Yes, it definitely is. You want it to come from you. You want it to be honest. You want it to be accurate. You want your kid to be clear. Like we can talk about this stuff. I'm the trusted source of information, (laughs) not your peers. And you want to do this with your kids when they're little, because when they're big, you want them to have had those kinds of experiences so that when they're adolescents, they still believe that you're the most trusted. Yeah. Wouldn't that be awesome? If possible. I recognize (laughs) that that's maybe not possible for some families, but yeah. Well, I think there is some truth to that. We have some older kids now and we've decided to take the route of just, you know, head on. But I think there's been a lot of freedom in that, you know, freedom in knowing 
I can go to my parents with big things. They can handle it. Yep. So I think as scary as it is to start diving headlong into some of those things, sex included, you know, that you really do. And the control freak part of me, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really do want to be in control of the information. So yes, yes, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Harness that power here. It's good. Yeah. 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 There are ways, there are ways that comes out in parenting and it's really counterproductive, but I can see where I can. Uh You I can make good it. use of it. Yes, definitely. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, this is all really good. Super, super useful. If you had any last thoughts, anything that you'd really want parents to take away on this topic, what would you want to tell them? Yeah, you know, I think just this, you know, uh, to reiterate, like their presence, their their attunement, like that really is what we see with research. The number one thing that prevents decreases the likelihood of the development of traumatic symptoms is when the person who experienced a trauma is quickly met with connection, with relationship, with presence, with attunement, not with somebody who can fix it, not with, you know, none of those. It's just presence, just presence, attunement, connection, which requires you to get regulated yourself and then just be there to hear and feel your kids, you know, really big feelings and which means we have to get present with ourselves for how terrible it feels when our kid experiences something awful that was completely out of our control or when something really tragic happens that changes the course of their life or their innocence or their you know that we're honest with ourselves about our relevant grief related feelings about this so that we can then show up and be present for them and for the, what their experience is. It's really hard. It is. I'm such a fixer, but it, yeah. but history in our family shows that you're absolutely telling the truth. And when I get that right, it makes a huge difference. And yeah. I mean, it seems so counterintuitive really, because I want to just fix the things, yeah. but it is incredible how much not fixes itself, but kind of how much works out in that process yeah. of presence. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Robin, thank you so much for taking time to walk through this with us. Again, super, super helpful. Good. It was my pleasure to be here. It's fun to see you again. That interview with Robin was so fabulous. I'm so thankful she was willing to be on our podcast and share such valuable information with us. I know. Like I told you, I could literally listen to her for hours and feel like I need her in my back pocket to just keep talking me through. Like you can do this, you know, be in charge of your own emotions. You can walk your kids through this. So I love her. So was there anything she said that really stuck out to you? Well, I loved her, her story that she told about her son and his traumatic event. Well, first of all, I love that she admitted that she didn't actually catch it. Like she was sort of like a normal mom, you know, she wasn't like super, oh, I know exactly what to do in this moment. She actually even asked a colleague. And, but then I loved the way she walked him through it and helped him process it and helped his brain sort it out so that he could recover from the trauma. I also appreciated that she mentioned the way she knew he wasn't processing this well is because his behavior was showing that to her. And I think, you know, we always have to be curious about our kids because his behavior might have just been kind of crummy and it'd be so easy to just think of it as bad behavior, but she recognized that it had changed following that event. So we have to be curious about why our kids are doing what they're doing. Yeah, I love, again, how she's just another mom with a lot 
of really great information about the brain. I think I remember Jane saying back on episode four that it's really important to process these kinds of events with our kids 72 hours, within 72 hours after they happen. And so I think sometimes, you know, we need to get a little space from it. We don't want to talk about it a whole lot and drudge up those emotions so soon. It's too fresh. It's too raw. But if we don't process that with our kids, they process it for themselves basically. And then it kind of stores as trauma. And so if that has happened for you, there are certainly still, there's still time. You can still process that event and reprocess it so that, you know, you're still helping your child, but ideally you would do it within that first 72 hours before it really grabbed its roots of trauma in your child's memory. Yes. And the other thing about that is I think sometimes when something upsetting happens, we might think, I'm going to wait and see if my child talks to me about it because, you know, I don't want to make more of this than it really is to him. Maybe it wasn't that big of a deal to him, but our child may need to be invited to talk about it. And that's where I think keeping that 72 hours in mind is really useful because we can think to ourselves, this scary thing happened. He witnessed his friend, let's say, being hit by a car or something, you know, and that actually has happened in our community here. You know, we think, I'll wait and see if he needs to talk about it. Well, the truth is, that is traumatic. He does need to talk about it. He may or may not be willing, but we need to, as the adult, with the knowledge we have of trauma and children's brains, we need to be the ones to give them very easy opportunity to talk by asking them questions. That's a great point. And I think sometimes if we're not sure if our child has experienced something as trauma, even like Robin was saying, throwing up in a classroom or, you know, something that we might not even think of. I mean, I guess I can totally understand how that's dramatic, but, you know, just at the end of the day, checking in with our kids and just asking them to kind of tell the story of their day, whether it's dramatic or not. I love that language of just asking our kids to tell the story of anything. And I think they'll give us a lot of clues about how they're, where they stand with it and whether or not we need to dig a little deeper into it. That's, that's so true. That's all wonderful. If you want to hear more from Robin, you can head to her website at gobelcounseling.com. That's G-O-B-B-E-L counseling.com and follow her on Facebook as well. She's at facebook.com slash gobelcounseling. If you're driving or otherwise occupied right now, those links are on the show notes at theadoptionconnection.com slash six. You'll want to head over there anyway, because Robin has created a great handout for us that walks us through the steps that she talked about for creating a trauma story with your child. So in case you're a visual gal like me, or you just need a refresher, you'll definitely want to grab that download. That download also includes links to the trauma story that Robin created with her son that she shared with us about, and a story template that you can use with your kids when you do this exercise. Remember, you don't have to do this exactly like Robin describes. The important thing is to create space for processing and staying present emotionally with your child. So again, just head to theadoptionconnection.com slash six to grab this free resource. We've come to the part in the podcast that we call mentor moments, where we answer a listener's question. So our question this week is, do these older adopted and foster kids ever launch into the world? Oh my gosh, such a good question. And having older foster and adopt kids at our home, I have asked this question many, many times. Uh, We adopted kids as older kids, but this really, I think this question applies to any of our kids, no matter what age they came into our home. And I think the best place to start for this question is to really think about what does launch mean for our family and what does success look like for our kids? Do you have any thoughts on that? 
You know, I think we think about success in terms of how our kids are launching or turning out through the lens of maybe what we've known in the past with other kids we've raised or the world standards. What does the world see as success? But I think for our kids, we need to really expand what success means. We need to lay down a lot of our previous expectations and look at each of them really individually. And what is success for that child going to mean? Success might mean getting a GED. It might mean going to college. It might mean going to a trade school. Uh, We've both had the experience now of launching kids out into Job Corps. And so success needs to be a broad term. And for those of us who are people of faith, I think success is even different because then I think we're talking about helping our kids become who God intends for them to be, to really looking at their talents and skills and saying, how can my child use these for the good of the world and to bring glory to God? So success is maybe a bigger topic, just needs to be thought of more broadly for a lot of us. Oh, for sure. I think that's so true. I think even the definition of success every day of what it looks like in our house, I've been really, really thinking about that. And then in terms of launching, I've had a couple thoughts. We've had kids from our house actually launch. And then we also have some kids who I think probably will need to stick around a little bit longer. And I had to reframe my, just my definition of launch, but even what I thought about the need to launch. And of course we want our kids to be able to live up to their full full potential. But now when we have kids in our family who just aren't doing the things that I thought that they would be doing at certain ages or wish that they were doing, I have to remember just like every other thing with like connected parenting, that behavior is communicating something. And so if I have a kid who isn't quite doing the things that I think an 18-year-old should be doing, what is that telling me about whether or not he's ready or she's ready? And rather than seeing that as a failure of my child and or me for preparing my child, it's what are they telling me that they still need to feel safe in the world, to feel like they can you know, spread their wings and fly because they really want to. Um, If they don't want to, I think that points to something much deeper. The other thing that I had to really come to terms with was that we needed to be their biggest cheerleaders, which is really hard for me because I see room for improvement in everything, not just in my kids, but myself. And so I would see them looking to go do something. And I think, I don't know, you have to be better before you do that. Or I would hear them talking about something and I would think you could do better. Or I would, they would tell me about applying for something. And my first thought was like, well, did you use proper English? And you know, those questions fell on my kids as criticism and they weren't really meant to be. They were meant to be like pushing them towards excellence in my head. But when we became just their biggest cheerleaders and stopped asking questions and just let them go and kind of figure out for themselves whether or not that was going to work, that we weren't the gatekeepers to what they could go and try. And so if a child wanted to try the military or try to go to college or any of those things, we decided we weren't going to be the ones to say, I don't think that's a smart idea that we would let them kind of figure it out and then we would be their safe place to land if it didn't work out. We've had so many similar questions to this one that we've decided to do an entire episode about older kids, young adults, helping them transition into the world, and that will be coming up soon. In the meantime, if you would like to submit a question for a future episode, send an email to email at theadoptionconnection.com or leave a message at 208-741-3880. We promise that nobody will answer and you'll just get to record your question for us.
If you need more personalized help, we offer private coaching. So for more information about that, head to www.theadoptionconnection.com forward slash services. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.